Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Katie Hall. Hey, Katie, how are you? I'm good, Zach. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. We've we've spent probably 20 minutes already riffing, and I'm like, I need to hurry up and get a mic on here. I'm well, I'm doing this thing where I shut off the Wi-Fi on my audio equipment so that no calls or no one from the outside world can come in yeah. and. Um, cause any friction between you and I. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of my favorite answers um, when, when we get to the end of this podcast, I'm going to ask you like what, you know, what you most want to see, you know, change in the world. Yeah. And I asked that question to Deirdre Sartorelli. She's the head of entrepreneurship Dean at Endicott college. And she was like, presence. I just want more people to be present with each other. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, cool. Like I've, I'm really trying to do that more. Um, so I'm you looking can't be present in here. Yeah, I don't one, know where. Yeah. One of the things I love about the podcast format is the uh, ability to just kind of be here and have a conversation. And for those in the Boston community and beyond, because as we found, we have a lot of listeners that are not from Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, just like it's, it's just like a, a lens into like a very, um, you know, focused conversation between two people. And I think a lot of people probably really gravitate toward the messages that you want to get out. Um, so thank you so much for being here. I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, and you're here joining us from uh, Ciprin Global. That's I, right. Did I say that right? You, you did. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. And I, and I want to sort of get back to your backstory, but sort of like talk to um, introduce the Boston Speaks Up community to sort of your role at Ciprin and, and how you're um, protecting American IP vis-a-vis -vis China. That's right. Which is of monumental importance. Um, so yeah, like, why don't you give an overview of, of your role there? Sure. Thanks, Zach. Um, so I'm the chief uh, intellectual property officer at Ciprin Global, and Ciprin is Ciprin Global is a U.S. subsidiary of Ciprin in China. And recently in China, like over the last 10 years, they've been trying to totally change the patent system there. So they've been putting a lot of money into um, courts and rules and laws that they can become a major player in the global IP world. And this is not something that people necessarily think of when they think of China. Um, for a long time, you know, when I very first started my career, people didn't very often wouldn't even bother to have their patents prosecuted in China because they didn't know who, you know, where were they going to be um, found valid? Where could you enforce them? It was expensive to translate them. But nowadays, with China really trying to make themselves a major player in the IP world, you really sort of ignore China at your peril. And within China itself is a company called Ciprin that does a lot of trademark filings, IP patent filings, copyright filings, things of that nature. And they can do it very cost effectively because they have a huge team of people working on it. Mm -hmm. And we realized that if we could open up that um, machine that's running already in China to people in the U.S. that not only could we very cost effectively take patents from the U.S. and and um, submit them in China, mm -hmm. but it could go the other way because a lot of people in China have already done the work to build a good patent. It's just a matter of translating it, which by the way can be done there, mm -hmm. and then we can file it here. So it's really what we're trying to do is help U.S. inventors protect their IP in China. At the same time, we can help Chinese inventors protect their IP in the U.S. Oh, that's cool. I like the, the mindful way that you're approaching it as, a, as an organization, which is, it works both ways. Exactly. Protect, protect, and at the core, it's protect, protect all 
innovators and entrepreneurs IP. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how much? How much of a problem? Now, with that in mind, mm-hmm. how much is it a problem that, as you found or anecdotally, you get a sense of that American companies are stealing or copying IP from China? Because as I've as a, the layman sort of tech reader, I've read plenty about Chinese companies straight up carbon copying uh, businesses recently. Amazon's opened up its ad marketplace. Mm-hmm. There's all these third-party software as a service companies mm-hmm. that are um, in the United States, a couple of which that are out of Seattle. And there, it's it's this new ad tech marketplace around Amazon product marketing. Mm-hmm. Optimize your ad spend on uh, on, Av- on on Amazon, and. Uh, invested in and sort of advising one of the companies in the space and they sent us this company out of China and it's boilerplate all the messaging all the like the entire pitch looks like the same they're presenting the same product mm-hmm. in, from from China to execute against this business um, so I have some like very micro specific examples and then I've read a bit about it so I'm just curious like do you think the problem works similarly both ways or is that sort of like the diplomatic way of sort of manifesting in today's global economy? Well, I think, uh, I think it definitely, it works always is the way I would say it. So there's certainly a very robust business of patent litigation in the United States where two United States companies are suing each other. One of them accusing the other of infringing their patent. Yeah. And that's been going on forever. So, you know, people are copying each other. Um, and you know, when there's a good idea out there, what there, there's an old saying that, uh, something like copying is a great compliment or Mm -hmm. the best form of flattery. There you go. the most sincere form of flattery. So, you know, the important thing to realize is the way patents work is that if I have a U.S. patent on my technology, then I've protected my technology from anybody that makes, uses, or sells that technology in the United States needs to come to me and say, hey, I would like to, you know, license your technology or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for example, if I patent something in the United States and I don't patent it in China, and then someone in China were to make, use, and sell in China, I actually don't have any patent rights. So part of it is, you know, for people to make sure that they're protecting their intellectual property in all parts of the world, you know, where they think it's important. Now that the world has become much smaller and there's, um, it's much more of a, you know, global economy, Mm -hmm. it's very rare for us to find something that would only be made, used, and sold in one place. You know, things are made one place and sold someplace else and used. So as long as you've touched one of those places with your IP portfolio, Mm. you know, you're covered. I think the other thing that's happened is that for a long time, I mean, there's Lots of times when people will, there's some patent infringement that happens because people just don't know. You know, they don't realize. Now, whenever you find someone that's, you know, doing sort of side by side, you can put two, you know, marketing campaigns or business plans up next to each other and they look, you know, line for line to be exactly the same. I mean, that is typically a case where there should be some kind of a patent infringement lawsuit and people need to go to the courts and explain, you know, what's going on and who came up with it first. And there's a lot of work that goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind the scenes to determine, you know, who really does own that intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I don't really, 
of course, we've we've all heard stories, um, mm -hmm. but the couple of times that I've been involved in patent lawsuits myself, it's been in the U.S. for you know two U.S. companies going against each other. So it, you know this kind of thing is happening all the time. Everywhere, that's fair. One of my best friends uh, and groomsmen is uh, he's a IP uh, patent attorney mm -hmm. at Finnegan in, mm -hmm. in D.C. and he started at the United States Patent and Trademark Office and he's never been busier. Um, <laughs> and actually, recently I even connected him with um, with Deirdre Sartorelli, who who um, I, I think I already mentioned who, from from Endicott because it, they have a pretty strong entrepreneurship program at uh, Endicott College, and it's becoming increasingly more important that. Um, IP law be integrated in at the sort of like incubation level mm -hmm. for U.S. tech. Mm -hmm. and actually, um, several of the lawyers at Finnegan are all getting poached to come to Boston uh -huh. because there's a big, like one of his friends just, he just connected me to, he just moved up to Cambridge to work for a company. So mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot more, you know, it's pretty commonplace for companies to have sort of in-house counsel for the same reason. So I imagine that's good. It's good for business. Mm -hmm. um, it's good for what for what Ciprin's doing. Um, so I'd love to. So that's what you're doing now. I'd love to kind of peel back some layers of your career mm -hmm. and how you got to where you are, and then talking about you know some of the. You have a very like purpose driven, impact driven mindset that is beautiful from afar. That I'm looking forward to scratching in <laughs> to here in person and sharing with listeners. Um, but talk about, so, you know, where'd you grow up mm -hmm. and did you have siblings? Like, what was your, mm -hmm. what was your childhood like? You, are you a local? Yeah. I'm a local. <laughs> um, so I always, I've been, you know, I've grown up in New England, but um, when I was in, mostly in Connecticut until eighth grade, when I moved to Westboro, Massachusetts and uh, kicked off my career in Massachusetts by trying out and making the boys basketball team in junior high school. Nice. <laughs> That's <it> awesome. <laughs> I was third string. I was third string. Okay. But, um, yeah, because when, in Connecticut. My love had, for basketball comes from my mother. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's she was, perfect. She was, the, she'll, she tells all my friends, I was the backup center of the high school team, but the starting center smoked cigarettes. So I got to play more. <laughs> I used to say I wanted to have 12 kids. So I had my own basketball team. I knew a couple of them would yeah. want to take music yeah. or something and I needed, you know, to yeah. scrimmage. Amazing. So you made the boys team. So right off the bat, you're like, all right, we don't have to have these binary ways we look at things. Like I'm playing on the boys basketball. Yeah. Team. I just couldn't yeah. understand why there wasn't a girls team yeah. because in Connecticut where I had been playing, there was, although when I learned to play basketball, that yeah. was when girls still couldn't cross the half court. Yeah. So you put three on each side. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, we came up and there was no girls team. And I remember saying to my mother, she said, well then try out for the boys team. So, you know, so there I did. So I guess I've always been sort of fighting that. I think I've been fighting that fight um, for some time. But um, yeah, so I grew up in Westboro, Massachusetts uh, from eighth grade on. I have, I'm the oldest of six kids. So, um, you know, the oldest of a big family like that winds up being almost a sort of a second mom, uh, having a lot of responsibility and trying to set a good example. Um, but I will yeah. say, you know, when I think back on my, um, when I think back on my childhood and, you know, I didn't come from a family with a lot of money or anything like that. And no surprise with six kids, but you know, with my mom, she never really told us we couldn't do something. She would just say, if you want to do something, then figure out what you need to do and do it. You know, yeah. like if you want to play on the boys basketball team, well then, you know, start practicing and try out or, yeah. um, you know, you want to do, I mean, and she would let us, we had kind of free reign, you know, yeah. go out in the morning and we wouldn't have to be back till the street lights were on. And, um, and so we were really kind of out and about and on our own and, um, and really as far as she was concerned, anything, as long as we tried hard and worked hard, you know, she would support us, whatever we did. That's amazing. You, you mentioned this in the pre podcast questionnaire that 
your mom is is probably the most inspiring person mm. that you've had in your life like is there any any more evidence of that you'd like to share i mean what you know what is it that she was you know doing when you were growing up like she was just like very it sounds like she was not blindly supportive she was like i support you and just go find figure out the steps you need to make to to make that goal happen right, uh, right. but you know where where did she come from and and where does where did her sort of where did that nice, beautiful, like encouraging progressive mindset come from way back when? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, my mom is a very religious person. So mm -hmm. I think part of it, um, comes from there, this idea that you should be trying to help people and that you have some sort of God given talent and you have a responsibility to deliver on that. You know, you don't just get to sit around and waste that. Um, my mom also always had this very positive view on life. I can remember one time, you know, somebody, I came home from school, I said somebody had laughed at something I was wearing, and my mother said, isn't that nice that you made them happy? <laughs> so she always had this Glasses way. always have Yeah, she always had this way of, you know, which sometimes is frustrating, because sometimes you want somebody to just say, yeah, you know what, you're right, that really stinks. And that was not her way. Her way was always, well, you know, here's the good way to look at it. And, yeah. And I think, you know, that instilled in me a kind of an optimism and a belief that things can and will get better and that we can, you know, work together to do that. Um, I think the other thing I know with my mom, she was the first in her family to go to college, and, but her mother was a nurse and she had an aunt that was a nurse. So she used to tell me, you know, the women in my family have always been educated. You know, mm -hmm. that was a thing. The women had, had always been educated. And so... You know, that really made me from the very beginning think, oh, I have to go get an education. That's going to be a key to me being able to do what I really want to do in life. And she was right about that. No, that's great. Thanks, mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mom. So let's talk about doing that then. When you like, would you sought out your education? Mm -hmm. Where did you, how did, you know, you, you talked about, again, pre-podcast questionnaire that will go out with the, when we launch the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I loved how you described how you fell in love with physics mm -hmm. and when yeah because of how like a big undercurrent of this podcast is is identifying that people don't know exactly what they want to do when they're young for the most part right. um but you know instilling simple things like the encouragement your mother instilled in you to like well go you're going to, you're going to seek out education mm -hmm. and you're going to, and, and, and I think you said a bit in your, in your answer, you know, even to this day, like what you, what you say to young people as, as a teacher at, um, at a, a professor at Wellesley mm -hmm. is if you don't know exactly what you want to do, which is probably most common and, and be honest with yourself, you probably don't expose yourself to many things and then find that thing or those things that, that really evoke some sort of emotion spark some stoke some fire in you and make you feel passionate for you that was physics right uh but just like you know how did you you know where did you go to college and how did how did you kind of approach school to give yourself an opportunity to let physics find you yeah it's funny when I look back on it because I had wanted to be president of the United States. That was my plan when I went to college. And part of it is that I had been an exchange student the year before I went to college. Where? Uh, it, I went to Japan. Okay. And um, I didn't know anything about Japan. And my mother says to this day, she didn't even know I had signed up to be until, you know, they got some letter in the mail that said, you know, we need you to sign these forms so that your daughter can go to Japan. Um 
and I moved and I got on an airplane, never having been on an airplane before in my life. And I went and I got dropped off with a family in Gotemba, uh, Japan. And it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. I mean, the, they didn't, the food was completely different. The house was completely different. In some ways, it was as different a place that I, as I had ever been in my life. But in some ways, it was exactly the same because it was a family and the way the parents cared for their children and the way that they took care of me and the kindness and all of that was exactly the same. And I realized, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. Our government sets us up as enemies of each other. But mm -hmm. when you meet people, people everywhere are the same. And, you know, I really thought for me, it was such a revelation. And I thought, what are our politicians doing with, you know, I mean, it was, and look at it now. Yeah, spinning right? up the narratives at a macro level uh, of, of hate and, and, and setting yeah. one, pitting one person against yeah. the other, saying somehow people are different. Discontent well, and like just seeding, seeding doubt in, in anything other than we're all humans. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I just, I couldn't stand it. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to become a, a politician and I'm going to bring this idea of working together and we all matter, you know, into a political career. And so off I go to Wells. I was actually at a student government. I was a student government day representative or something. And it was my local rep whose name I cannot re remember, um, who said to me, oh, you know, have you thought about Wellesley College because I didn't know. I mean, mm -hmm. in those days, you didn't think about college until your senior year, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. He's like, it's an all-women's school. My daughter goes there. I think you'd really like it. So I applied. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it came time to decide, I really wasn't, Wellesley was not at the top of my list until one day my mother said to me, you know, you've been fighting all your life for girls to have the same uh, things that the boys get in school. Wouldn't you like to, for once, go someplace where it's already for the girls? You don't have to fight for mm. it. And I was like, hmm, you know, I thought about it. I said, yeah, that's a thanks, mom. Good point, mom. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Seems to be a theme. Uh, my yeah. siblings are going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you're just being too nice to mom on yeah. that. But, <laughs> but I thought, yeah, you know, she's right. And so I came to Wellesley with a, I was going to be poli-sci major, and I signed up. I got my first political science course and the yeah. whole thing. And then I looked at Wellesley Liberal Arts School. You have these distribution requirements. Yeah. And so one of the things they had to do was take a science course. And I hadn't had physics in high school because I was very busy trying to, you know, get the best in the best classes. And so they had yeah. an AP, yeah. but no physics. So I signed up for physics and I stepped foot in the lab the first day and I just loved it. It was like tinkering or, or playing with things, yeah. you know, rolling carts down ramps to see how fast they would go. And then seeing it, that there were these mathematical expressions that really weren't that too difficult mm -hmm. to explain it. And, you know, everything just, everything I saw just was cool. Yeah. You know, I just saw every demo we did. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah. And I realized that I, that I was just hooked. I found it fascinating. And the political science was all of this reading and what is utopia. And yeah. I'm not, not to say it, it's perfect for somebody, yeah. but it wasn't right for me anymore yeah. once that happened. And I just completely switched over yeah. and I've never looked back wow. from them. Wow. I, mean, I just loved it. That's amazing. So did you, and that's, that is, that is a nice thing about there are things undergraduate studies don't get, but the liberal arts is, is valuable and that it, 
if done when done correctly, you get exposed to enough things. So did you make physics your major? I did. I made physics my major. And, um, but the funny thing is I had no one, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. There's no scientists in my family, you know, nobody else had majored in physics. Um, and, and what I really wanted to do was just stay in Boston when I got out of college. Cause a lot of my friends were a year older than I was and they had all found jobs in the Boston. And they were rooting in and you're, yeah. And I'm like, this yeah. is going to be great. I'll yeah. find a job. But at the time there were not that many jobs mm -hmm. available. And again, my mom uh, mm -hmm. comes into the story telling me she had read in the globe that there was a hot new topic in physics called fiber optics. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, she thought that was something I should look into. And uh, I managed to get myself an interview down at Bell Labs in New Jersey, which was at the, the epicenter of fiber optics work that was going on. Mm -hmm. in the, and I wrote on my resume that I was interested in fiber optics, yeah. really not knowing, yeah. you know, too yeah. much. So yeah. how did you get here? It's, a, you know, you kind of stumble along yeah. the way. And I got really lucky and I met a group of people who said, you know, we, we, we think you're interesting. We think you'll work hard. We're going to give you a chance to see what you can do here. And after vowing I would not leave Boston, I packed up my car and moved to New Jersey to yeah. work at Bell Labs. It was, yeah. you know, one of the great decisions of my life. That's cool. Where in New Jersey was that? Uh, the place I worked at was uh, called Crawford Hill. It's in Homedale, New Jersey, sort okay. of central Jersey, before yeah. you really hit the nice shore towns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice shore Got towns. it. And how long were you there? I was there for three years. Three years? Yeah. And what were you doing? What kind of experience were you gaining at that point? So I was a technician yeah. there and the technician job is, um, you know, you're really there helping out uh, sort of more senior scientists and doing a lot of jobs that they probably don't want to do or that they think you would be good at doing. Um, but at the time, you know, optical communications was really taking off. So people were being able to communicate at faster and faster speeds and they were building new devices and Bell Labs was one of the, you know, central labs. So, and we were trying to beat out everybody else you know we wanted our systems to be faster and to go yeah. farther so I, I loved that competitive yeah. um, part to it and uh, and I remember after I'd been there for about a year or so some of the guys I worked with said why aren't why aren't you going to graduate school and I said oh no you know I really like this this is mm -hmm. fun I'm learning so much you know you're it's like being in a workshop all day long and then one day we had to splice together 300 spools of optical fiber. So each one of them had to have two connectors put onto it by hand and then polished by hand oh, and then connected. And it was so tedious. Yeah, I was going to say tedious and I is the to only myself, word that comes to mind. <laughs> I think I'm going to go to graduate school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because then I can ask somebody yeah. else to do that. Right. <laughs> I understand what goes into this particular task. And I'm going to go to graduate school and I'm going to sit a little bit higher <laughs> in the business food. Uh, yeah. business food chain yeah. so so you went to graduate school so what, what how did your journey kind of take you back to boston yeah so that's yeah. when uh, i so i got into mit and i came back um to go to graduate school at mit and that was just for me i mean i feel like i'm the luckiest person um i think that you know really the experience that i had at bell labs was attractive to people because i they could see that i knew how to work in a lab mm -hmm. but i wasn't you know i wasn't like the superstar student of the century you know coming out of wellesley but i think that because i had that experience um, and I think always in life, if you look back, people have to take a chance on you. You know, yeah. somebody had to say, well, you know, this is not, this is not the usual person that comes, you know, knocking on our door, but let's give her a chance. And, you know, um, for me, that was, 
was a, a professor at MIT named Eric Ippen, and you know he gave me a chance. And he, his lab was just unbelievable. It had all the equipment that we needed. It was doing mm-hmm. cutting edge re, re, cutting edge research. Um, and another guy that said, you know, here, get going, see what you see what you find is interesting, and and see what you can you know get going. Um, and so for me, it was perfect. I mean, I was scared to death to go to MIT. I yeah. can tell you, um, you know, people used to say mind in trouble or mind in training. And I used to say it stands for me in trouble because I thought, you know, how am I possibly going to keep up? Yeah. But if you put your, you know, you put your nose to the grindstone and you meet people that are going to help you along the way. And, you know, luckily for me, it worked out. So that's cool. Then I've never left Boston since then. And you have, when was it that you were at MIT? Uh, From 1987 to 1993. Cool. And then the people you met at MIT, are there... Are they folks that you kind of, as you then went and embarked on your career post MIT, was it, was a lot of it through that network you built there at MIT? For sure. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So, um, when I, when I first graduated from MIT, I went to work at Lincoln Laboratory, which is part of MIT. Um, and then that's another place where you're just kind of expanding your network and we were doing optical networking research. So we were building some of the first, it was really it had all sort of been growing on top of the project I started working at Bell Labs. You know, Bell Labs, it was it's just... all built on top of the fiber optic cable, Yeah, right? exactly. Mom, exactly. thanks. <laughs> that Boston, or the Boston Yeah, that Boston Gold, Gold article, yeah. yeah. Who knows where she... I mean, what was she doing reading, reading an article about fiber optics? I yeah. don't know. And kudos to the reporter at the Globe and maybe the business section at that time who was, like, doing some pretty good in d- digging on, like... Where's the future of digital? Or yeah. Not even di- no, you're right. Digital communication. I guess yeah. that was how they were looking at Yeah, it's still digital communications. Like, what's it going to be built upon? What's right. going to accelerate its ability to permeate across many things? Right. And right. it's because when you think about it like that, then it's like fiber optic cable. Right. Like, okay. Like, but to what is so accepted now. Right. Right. No one knew. Exactly. Thanks again, Mom. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you <laughs> yeah. put that in your in your bonnet and you start going. So, yeah, so I, I built a network there. And then, you know, in those days, we would attend a lot of research conferences and then you sure. would meet other people. And so your network would, would sort of build that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just loved it. I found it to be a great place to work. Um, when I graduated from MIT, I thought about going back to New Jersey, but in the end, I really wanted to stay in Massachusetts because that's where my family is and mm-hmm. I wanted my kids to grow up, you know, around their cousins and, and their grandparents. So um, so I stayed and I worked at Lincoln for six years and I loved every minute. It's a really interesting combination mm-hmm. of MIT, the research, mm-hmm. but then also the government, you know, because there's government funding. And so that was... Yeah. Um, that was a little bit different kind of an environment than I'd been in. So before we move off of Lincoln, what was like, what's a notable project or output from Lincoln that maybe would be like folks would know or Mm. that you're particularly proud of Mm. like that maybe happened during that tenure or just in general that Lincoln kind of put out to market? Yeah. Well, so I think when I got there, Lincoln might've been, you know, what people knew the most about were satellite communication. So they used to build these experimental satellites and Lincoln was a big part of actually making the components and putting those 
communication systems in them. And Lincoln was always particularly proud because, you know, these satellites should, should have outlived their usefulness, you know, 10 years ago, but once a year they would turn it back on and they would still be able to talk to it or something. So, nice. there was, you know, they had really achieved some of these um, great satellite, uh, some of the great satellite technology. When I was there, we had a lot of money to work on um, all optical networks, and it was funded at the time mostly by DARPA, which is the Defense, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And we were working both on networks that were built up using lots of different colors of light, so each color of light could carry its own data. And this was one way to make the um, networks much more um, have be able to carry much more data. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing we were working on was trying to make each of those wavelengths be able to be modulated much more fast, much more quickly, turned mm -hmm. on and off much faster. Um, and those test beds were built up um, with fiber in the ground. It went between Lincoln and MIT, and some of it went down to DC. And these were some of the first, I mean, there were other people, I don't mean to give the impression yeah. that it was only Lincoln that was working on that at the time, but Lincoln was one of the premier places to do that kind of research. Meaningful contribution. Mm -hmm, yeah. For sure. And I mean, now if you've got Fios at your house, you've got fiber optics coming from, the, you know, coming into your house. There's a laser beam coming into your house with, you know, data transmitted on yeah. it. So, you know, that seemed that seemed to us like that would never happen when we were working on these things in the 90s. But of course, you know, it has happened. Yeah. Wow. So what do you do? So so then where to after Lincoln? <laughs> so I was really happy at Lincoln yeah. and it was 1999 yeah. and it was the telecom bubble. Oh yeah. Um, and in those days, if you had a, you know, if you had a PhD and you were working in optics, you know, there were so many companies, everybody wanted a part, you know, wanted to, you to go off and start a business. Sure. Um, and we had a very novel technology that where we could basically jump ahead in terms of the data rate for the systems that were running. So telecom had moved forward, you know, sort of every time you could go four times as fast uh -huh. and the system cost two and a half times as much or less, they would make the change. So, yeah. you know, it was two and a half gigabits per second was the data rate. And then the industry was about to move over to 10 gigabits per second. And we had a technology that would allow us to go 40. So, and, the, you know, we were looking at the bandwidth projections that the companies were putting out that said, you know, they just can't keep up if each wavelength can only, only carry 10 gigabits per second. We have to, we're going to have to have 40. And so we jumped in and had a startup company called Photon X mm -hmm. um, that was based actually in Maynard, Massachusetts. So uh, Kristen, this is in 99. This is in 99. Yeah. So Kristen Rauschenbach, who I worked with at Lincoln Lab and a third collaborator, Nan Ying Yin, who was at Nortel at the time. We got together and we started this company. We said, we're going to build equipment, optical equipment that's going to carry the data signals across the backbone of the country. So sometimes they call them NFL cities. You know, mm -hmm. you go between Boston and New York and New York and Kansas City. Yeah. And, um, and we're going to do it at 40 gigabit per second. And we actually did. Um, we built a we built the equipment. We had it field trialed at Deutsche Telekom. Um, the problem was, as everybody knows, that market uh, that it, that market burst. And part of the problem was that you know some of the people that were out there projecting where the bandwidth demands or what the bandwidth demands were going to be were way over inflating the estimates. I mean, those you know the kind of bandwidth they were talking about needing then is what we're hitting now. Mm. Um, and so, unfortunately for us, we had a product that worked the way we said it would, and everything else. But we were ahead of the we were you ahead of our time. for a need that was twenty years not early. Not yet, yeah. Not, yeah. Uh, yeah. People yeah. would say, oh, yeah. yeah, not yeah. twenty, but yeah. 
But it was maybe, early. Maybe, it was a, early. maybe a solid five, yeah. five to 10 years. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so did Photon, was Photon X backed by a lot of private equity? Yes, it was all private equity. Yeah. And so what was the run, like how long did the company run? And For four, you know, the company four ran years. for four years. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I said, it's, for, to me, the technical piece is one of the things I'm most proud of because we really, from a piece of paper, we built up these, yeah. you know, seven foot racks of equipment that were deployed um, in a field trial, for example, at Deutsche Telekom and received rave reviews. Um, but it doesn't do you any good if the business, you know, yeah. if it's if the marketplace is not there asking for it, then. Right. Did you go somewhere at, from that lesson? Or did you go somewhere where you were more certain that you were building or working on something that the marketplace needed? Well, I think it did impact. So what I did right away was realize I loved the startup world. Yeah. Um, and I just loved this idea that you could try to come up with an idea for a product and, you know, build a team around it and, and make it. Make it real. Yeah. Um, and so, but at the time, you know, it was very difficult to get funding because the whole, you know, market had just been kind of wiped out. So. Mm-hmm. Um, a f- friend of mine, a guy named Morris Kiesler, who had uh, I had gone to graduate school. We worked together at Photon X. He and There's I decided, that MIT network. Yeah, that's yeah. right, the MIT network. So yeah. Morris and I decided let's start a company and try to fund it with government funding or sort of per project funding. While we look around and see where's the next next hot topic going to be, and then we can build a, the going, a company yeah. around that. And what's interesting is we were working on we were doing that in optics. And we had an optics project with a set of professors at MIT, the MIT Connection again. And one of those professors, a guy named Marin Soljicic, had yet a different project he was working on on wireless power. Okay. And he had come up with a way to transfer wireless power over distances that were a few meters long safely. And printed an article in Nature Magazine with a picture of the team standing between two coils, you know, lighting a light bulb, and his phone exploded. Like, everybody was calling, this is amazing, what is this? And we were having a meeting related to the optical sensor that we were working on together, mm-hmm. together and Marn was just saying to us, oh, my phone is ringing off the hook, I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm going to think I'll start a company. Would you guys ever be interested in working in wireless power? And for Morris and me, it was exactly what we hoped would happen, which yeah. is that some idea would pop up. It would yeah. make sense. But it wasn't yeah. in optics. It yeah. was in, you know, wireless power. But right. we figured, well, you know, we've been trained. We can we can figure this out. Yeah. And um, and so we joined uh, Marin and his students at MIT, and we were part of the beginning team at uh, Whitricity, which mm. is currently based in Watertown, right. Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. That, so that was 2000. Four. That was two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Yeah. Okay. So electricity has been around. Like, how's what, what's what's the size of electricity now? Like, uh, yeah, I actually richer, I'm yeah. not sure exactly huh. how many people they have, but the um, it's still know, private, right? It's still private. Yeah. But they have a huge patent portfolio, which yeah. is how I very first got interested in patents. Yeah. And um, they are working with the electric vehicle manufacturers to build stations at home where you could drive into your driveway, get out and go into the house and the car will automatically charge itself. You won't actually have to physically plug it in. Yeah. It's amazing when, um, for listeners, when Katie showed up today, I was just 
getting her situated in the, in the correct parking spot. And then um, I was like, oh, is this a, like, I was like, oh, is this an electric car? And you're like, oh, no. And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. I'm like, I, I feel like the next time I buy a car, it's going to be an electric car. I'm like, but I don't have a driveway. I don't know where I'm going to put a charger. And then you explained to me, well, actually, <laughs> I had some people that can, you can get a, you, you can, can, get you can charge in your driveway and, and, and you can do so wirelessly now, apparently. Yeah. So that's amazing. So electricity has, um, some of the underlying like infrastructure and patents against like some of the, like a lot of the innovation happening there. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So the role, so you're at electricity, you're getting exposed to, and there's like a whole like theme that I want to hit on soon and, and, and unpack, which is, as you mentioned earlier, you have benefited from putting yourself out there, letting opportunities and, and opportunities kind of coming your way, but also realizing that that's like, a, like similarly, you want to share that with, mm-hmm. with people, especially underserved and underrepresented people. And I, and I really, really want to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about like your, your, this increased exposure at what became electricity to um, the patent game mm-hmm. and kind of take us through like the last decade Mm-hmm. of your career mm-hmm. up to Cyprin and, and also like adjacent to some of these in, in, and as your mindfulness increased during that time, I feel like you, in, it seems to me, um, you started direct, you've, you've directed, um, a beautiful, um, amount of attention toward, Hey, while I'm continuing to ascend in my career, other people of, uh, you know, from all shapes and sizes and from different backgrounds should too have opportunities to exp- have this, uh, this like t- to be just enjoying these every single breaths we're having in life. Right. Right. Like I get that from you. Like right. the same with you and personally, <laughs> this is, you're amazing. Like you're super talented. You're smart. You've put yourself out there. You've reinvented yourself several times and you're like, and Oh, by the way, I want like, I want to carry everyone. Like not just my five young, younger siblings, throw the world on my back let's <laughs> you, go let's you make it a better that place part out of this and send it to me so i can listen to that <laughs> nice later. i will definitely <laughs> definitely nice yeah do. um so with all that like mm-hmm. with that in mind and just trying to like properly paint broader context around mm-hmm. like you know the, the 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 last decade of your career and I, I know what just is increasingly like becoming um you know your purpose mission driven mindset um yeah walk us through like last 10 years and, mm-hmm. and some of the, the initiatives that you're, that you're tied to and, and some of the, the aspirations that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, uh, at Whitricity, we were a very small company with a really great idea and everybody, but people at first didn't believe that the technology we had worked, which is common. They say, Oh, that will never work. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you're going to do it. Well, as a small company, you don't want to tell somebody how you're going to do it because they'll steal it from you. Right. Mm-hmm. So, we had to show them what we were doing. We had to build up demo systems. And while we were doing all of this to show people that we weren't kidding, the technology really worked. Behind the scenes, we were building this enormous patent portfolio. Um, and we were trying to think of every, I mean, one of the things about Whitricity that was so attractive to me was it could be used, this wireless power transfer could be used to charge a car. It could be used to charge implanted devices, medical devices. Um, it could be used to, you know, keep uh, water bowls for, of animals warm, you know, in the winter. I mean, there were just, there's mm-hmm. no, it, it can go in so many different directions. And having been in one industry where, you know, the need went away and then we were lost, here you were 
there were so many different directions. Very horizontal in nature. You could see its applications across exactly. industries. And so that was that was yeah. really attractive. Cool. And, and but building the patent portfolio, we knew was going to be crucial because anything that we built, somebody else could take apart and copy it. And sure. we were just a small company. How could we? The only way we really thought we could compete with them was to make sure that we had really done a good job of protecting the intellectual property. And so. Um, you know, as the C I was the CTO of the company there, but a major part of what I did was build the IP portfolio. Um, and then, you know, we worked we worked with some other people in the in the other lawyers that had ideas to sort of help us build very big portfolios on relatively small budgets. So there are, you know, there were some ideas about putting lots of patents, lots of patentable ideas in a single document, mm -hmm. filing it, you know, you pay one filing fee and mm -hmm. then you try to get it patented. And if, if you do manage to get a patent, you can go back later and pull out another one of the inventions. There were some ideas that these guys helped us come up with for how to build a, a, a patent portfolio. And we built really a huge portfolio. Interesting. You, so, like what you just described, if I were to play that back to you, is you you literally were innovating the patent portfolio production and finding economies of scale exactly to most efficiently create a vast library. Um, well, in, 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 and I said economies of scale efficiently, so you could also so then you could also focus on actually building right. the business. Right. Well, yeah. the other thing is we didn't know, you know, five years from now, which which application was going to hit first. You know, we weren't sure. So we were trying to protect all of it. But it's, you know, we couldn't afford to file patents on all of it. But there are ways that you, you know, there are ways. And it's all, by the way, it's not some kind of a scam. It's all like following the usual, yeah. you know, patent rules. Yeah. That you, what you really try to do is right. get as much, you know, kind of captured at the very beginning. But rather than go one-to-one, -one, you could go, many exactly yeah many exactly. interconnected interesting exactly. did you have in-house legal like did you or did you use a firm like and how much i mean did you ever at any point like consider going back to law like not that you were like the time to go to law school but like i guess like you almost kind of like from an adjacent capacity like you developed a lot of um ip knowledge uh, but what was your like what was the you know what was the team and like fast forward to today like so you probably could really understand the value in whether it's like even venture capital firms mm -hmm. um, like it really like IP it, protection is so critical mm -hmm. to so many startups right um, so what kind of team did were you like figuring that out. On the fly. No, so we no, we had definitely we had help. So we had we're working with an outside law firm who had you know there they had come up with this idea of how to very cost effectively build big portfolios. But what they didn't know is the particular technology, the details of the technology and what the applications were. And so, you know, it was really the combination of us working together um, to build that portfolio. But once you've done that once you know, then you get a little bit better at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not trained as a lawyer. I can't give legal advice, which is yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. I want to, yeah. but I can't. But, you know, in terms of being able to identify what makes a good patent or a strong patent, you know, that's something that I've picked up sure. over time. 
Um, and once you understand this kind of system for how to build that kind of portfolio, you can apply it to different technologies. You know, so later in my career after Ytricity, I started working with lots of little companies to help them build their IP portfolios because I had this track record proving that it had worked at Ytricity. And then it was just a matter of being able to jump in, understand the technology of a different startup and start to do that same kind of strategic thinking of where did we think we were going to go in the future? Mm -hmm. How do we try to capture that now, you know, so that we could build this into a, into a bigger portfolio. And then, so for a while I was just working with lots of different companies um, to do that sort of work. And I mean, I'm, I love the patent game. Yeah. It's very interesting, Yeah, it is. but I don't yeah. like writing patents, you know, it's same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Complete, I completely agree. Um, so, so here, so talk to the Boston community, talk to me about the how you view, um, how, how you would grade Boston on its ability to, you know, democratize access to opportunity, mm -hmm. uh, and and probably more importantly, what sorts of things are we doing and do we need to do to do a better job mm -hmm. of providing more access to opportunity so that this socioeconomic divide we got going? I don't know. Did you see the age of uh, or the meritocracy trap mm -hmm. came out? So the meritocracy yeah. trap just came out. This professor at Yale, I'll send this to you. This uh -huh. is you'll be basically filled with nuggets. And I haven't read the book yet. It just came out September 10th, but I listened to him. Um, Daniel, like Mark, Mark Witz, Markowitz, I think. Um, I probably just butchered that, but I'll share it with the Boston community. Um, just dropping nuggets like the, the separation between the 1% of wealthy mm -hmm. in America and the middle class mm -hmm. in the last two decades has separated 16 times more. Right. Mm. And so like when you really start to look at it from a macroeconomic standpoint, the middle class and those in poverty are like squarely lumped together yeah. and there's this really wide gap. And then there's this like super high concentration of wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and the reckoning for that or reckonings for that problem, like haven't happened yet. Right, right. <laughs> so it's very important right now. And one of the themes of this podcast and one of the things that I love about many people in Boston who are successful is how mindfully many are, partaking in very um, successful careers, mm -hmm. but with the, with a solid focus on how do I help address this socioeconomic issue mm -hmm. of our time? Um, and so let me just stop there. Um, let's go back to the question. <laughs> What's your grit? And we don't have to cut any of this because I love the, the community being able to see me kind of like meander my way through, um, some monologue, some monologues, but I, th but I, but you're a really good active listener and I can tell you're kind of like absorbing this all. So with that all in mind, what's the grade for Boston right now? What are we doing? Well, what do we need to do? Where are the, like, and why is it so important to you, Katie Hall? Wow. <laughs> the big question. Yeah. This is the big question. question. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know uh, in you know the details of there's probably some study somewhere that says where Boston is. I, I don't think any place is really doing a very good job right now mm -hmm. in terms of really 
um, making their tech spaces diverse. And I think we are all suffering because of it. Um, you know, Boston, we're lucky we have these great universities. And if you look at the diversity of students that attend our universities, it's unbelievable, right? We really have students from every part of the country, every part of the, everywhere on the socioeconomic ladder, um, every kind of religion, any way, any way people would try to divide us and pit us one against the other. Mm -hmm. Our universities are this incredible blend of everyone. Mm -hmm. And they all, and by the way, all those students make it through and do well. There is talent in every person in this in this world and it doesn't have anything to do with what you look like or where you come from and so I feel like there's so many problems out there that we haven't solved just because we don't have the right people working on them because we're the, the practices that we have are just keeping some people out of the game and the, the story I, or the thing I always say to my students at Wellesley is don't take yourself out of the game. I think when you, you know, we've heard about the old boys network. And if you look at, you know, if you go to the web and you start looking at startups and then you go to the about us page and look at the management, you know, it really does look not always, of course. And there are a lot of people that are really making a difference and working hard. And by the way, even if it's an old boys network, it doesn't mean that it's not a good place to work or that the company isn't really making strides yeah. forward. But the fact of the matter is we can look at the numbers and see that we're not pulling women in, we're not pulling underrepresented uh, minorities in, we're not pulling people that are different than the people that are already there into the tech space. And as a result, we're missing all kinds of solutions because you know there's talent there. Look at the universities. And if we don't find a way to diversify our workforce and to bring these people forward and give them a chance to be part of the solution, we're just going to miss out on the solutions. And I think, you know, I look at myself all these years I've been in, you know, I mean, my graduate degree was in electrical engineering. It's a primary, it's a male dominated, male dominated field for sure. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons I went back to teach is because I looked around and I thought, my goodness, all these years, 35 years out of Wellesley College, and there's no more women in my field than there were 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how does that happen? And I think part of it is that people take themselves out of the game. If you come mm -hmm. from, you know, if you don't have people in your family that, you know, that you can emulate, well, now you're kind of out there on your own, right? And and if you don't look like or feel like the other people you're working with, you might think, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. You don't, you don't really have confidence. You might just take yourself out of the game. You know, you might look and say, oh, I can't solve a math problem as well as that person can, or I can't do this as well as that person can. And you get to be kind of hard on yourself because you don't have other people there kind of, you know, working with you, lifting you up and trying to keep you in the game. But in fact, you know, it's the, what makes a person successful is this, in, is like this mix of everything that they are. It isn't just which math equations they can solve or how well they can program or, you know, it has to do with their personality. It has to do with their optimism. It has to do with their, how, how, how do they work as part of a team. And, you know, I really just feel so strongly that if we can, we have to open up opportunities, you know, how did I get lucky enough to be where I am is that somebody gave me an opportunity along the way. And if I, if they hadn't given me that opportunity, I didn't stand a chance. But then when they gave me that opportunity, I had to work really hard. You know, there's luck. You need, always yeah. need luck, but you need to be working really hard. So with luck comes your way, you can take advantage of it. And um, you know, I have just seen so many people in my career that are, you know, look, 
they're, they're all kinds of people and they come from all kinds of backgrounds and they've been brilliant in different ways. And I see it now when I teach, you know, a student will sit down, will come with a, to answer a problem and they'll start to tell me how they're answering it. And I'm thinking, oh, wait, that's not right. That's not right. Because they're not doing it the way I would do it. Mm -hmm. But if I let them finish, sometimes they get to the exact answer this other way. And I think, whoa, yeah. that's really cool. That yeah. is another way of looking at it. Oh, and hey, by the way, when you look at this problem that way, all these things open, you know, yeah. and, and I feel like that's what we're missing by yeah. not opening up the opportunities to everyone and not just opening them up, but taking care of people once you bring them in. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just enough to say, oh, I'm going to just bring this person in and see how they do, you know, off you go. Good luck to you. No, you have to have all of the mechanisms, you know, the support mechanisms in there and you have to be watching out for people and, you know, building them up and telling them when they do well and letting them know what they need to fix. And, you know, it would be such a great, I just know it would be yeah. so much better if oh, we yeah. did that. And that's why yeah. I'm passionate about it. That's great. So a few observations and then a question, but it's clear that, um, you know, you're hitting on some things that really ring true for me. Like it's the, the soft skills are so critical. Like mm -hmm. what makes, I love that you said like, like every person on the planet is just, is, is special. It has so, so unique, positive like attributes to bring in the world. And, um, a lot of what, like, even just in my own time, trying to hire younger people the last few years, um, it's been like, sometimes you just have like a refreshing moment. We've, you know, we've hired some of them. It's mm -hmm. just like, Hey, like you're, what you, what you do is important, mm -hmm. right? We're going to teach you many more things, but forget what you do for a second. Let's just talk about how you do it, mm -hmm. how you conduct yourself. Like, you know, the, like the, the openness at which you approach conversation, like, and, um, and it's, it's interesting. I don't know where, so like my follow-up question to you is sort of like, are there some frameworks you're aware of or like at what point do we sort of intercept and get in front of people, uh, young people and inspire them with confidence, mm -hmm. right? Maybe they are, but maybe they are not getting it from their parents and maybe they look around their peer group and their peer group's parents and they're like, Oh, like a career in technology isn't for me. Mm -hmm. in reality, it's a tech driven global economy right so it touches everything so like the, you know the, the, like how do so how do you like softly impact and inspire um young people in aggregate and create frameworks like programs where they're uh, introduced to the katie halls of the world and they're inspired you know so young women are inspired to seek out careers like yours and seek out counsel from people like from yourself mm -hmm. and other prominent female executive leaders out there that mm -hmm. you've shared with them. Um, are, you know, are, are there any, are there any frameworks that you're participating in that you want to share with the community? Are there like things you're ideating on? Mm -hmm. Like, how, because for me, college is too late. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. my thing. Um, I just had, we'll, we'll be releasing a podcast before this one, right before this one comes out with um, Roman Hackis. And Roman is in, he's a Methuen Mass resident, spent the first 17 years of his life in the Dominican Republic. And I told you this before we went mm -hmm. live and he's teaching, he's, he's got a, he's a software engineer by day at Phillips Health Systems. He spends a ton of his extra time 
teaching um, young children um, that are underserved, underprivileged, many of which don't have computers, but teaching them computer science skills at mm -hmm. Lawrence Public Library. And his organization is called Tech for Hood. Mm -hmm. And he works with the teen development coordinator for the city of Lawrence to get 13 to you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds signed up to yes, expose them to like, Hey, cool. Like this can be fun and tangible outcome. It shows up in Snapchat, like right. an app you and your friends use, <laughs> but then also like kind of take away like the fear mm -hmm. that like tech's not accessible. Right. Um, so, I, so I like, so that's like an example of, of a framework and a program that tries to sort of um, proactively engage teenagers. Mm -hmm. Do you have like any, any thoughts on some of the, um, you know, some of the programs or initiatives that maybe like Boston Speaks Up should, should, should shed a light on and mm -hmm. things we should share with the community? Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think the earlier we can, you know, intervene and stop whatever our culture is doing to people to make them think I'm not good at math. I'm not good at physics. You know, you hear this all the time. I mean, you'll hear it if you've got daughters, you'll hear it from your daughters at some incredible age. I do. I have a two year old. So <laughs> it's only a matter of time and you yeah. will hear, you know, and I just keep thinking, where does that come from? I'm sorry, but in third grade math, everybody can do third grade math. Okay. Yep. So this idea, like, I just can't, I don't know where it comes from, <laughs> but, um, um, you know, one of the things that the students at Wellesley do that I really love is they have a group called SLAM, which is for science learning and mentoring. And they go out, nice. um, particularly in the Framingham schools, to middle school students. Yeah. And they bring with them uh, science that yeah. they'd like to. They have demo. They have demos. Yeah. Um, they ha and the students come after school. It's primarily, you know, it's for mm -hmm. the for the girl students. And they so they see. Uh, they see the person who is presenting this material to them is a woman. They see, you know, and she may be from the U.S., she may be from anywhere in the world. I mean, who knows, right? But they start to think about, oh, hey, this is being explained to me, so that could be me. Interesting. You and it's what? the women in undergrads? Yeah, it's the undergrads. Oh, that's awesome. So it's like the cool, like, undergrads that are, like, doing their thing in college and they're sharing it with you. Like, that's like... Exactly. Oh, I want to be. I want to be her. That's what we years. hope. Yeah. I mean, that's really what we hope in the society. The, I like this um, a lot. A lot yeah. of the clubs at at Wellesley have this. Yeah, it's it's outreach. You know, they talk yeah. about being an outreach chair because there's plenty of communities close to us where you know you can you can go in and where the kids may not have seen a woman scientist ever or even know what science is. You know, sometimes people just think, "Oh, I don't like it," but they don't yeah. understand. Like me, yeah. when I went to college, I didn't. I didn't know what it was. How could I not have known by the time I got to Wellesley how cool it was going to be, you know, to be doing some kind of physics experiment? But I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know until I got there. So yeah. um, I, mean, really I, think, I think reaching out is really important. Um, you know, Wellesley itself has a bunch of programs that they're running to try to increase um, diversity in STEM. Okay. So, um, you know, one of the things that Wellesley does that I'm going to, I'm involved in only loosely now, but next year I'll be a mentor. Okay. Is a group called Posse. Okay. And so. Um, oh yeah, you mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. Posse is. Uh, there's Posse's all over the country. The Posse that comes to Wellesley comes from the Houston area. Okay. So they identify these truly outstanding high school students who may not otherwise know. They might not, except for this pro program, they might not know that they could actually go to a place like Wellesley, or maybe they've never even heard of Wellesley. Mm -hmm. um, and they identify a group of students, and the students get to know each other when they're in Houston, so that when they come to Wellesley, they come as a group. They all have to be admitted to the college. They mm -hmm. all get in. Um, 
but they have, they know each other before they get there. So this idea of a posse, like my posse is with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a way to try to help those students who, if they feel, if they come into this Northeastern, you know, it's cold, there's a lot of things that are really different to try to have there be a community for them already. Because I think a lot of, you know, a lot of when we talk about why things don't work is this, is the community. Do people feel a part of the community? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think that's where a lot of times businesses fall down. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to hire this person. But, you know, you need to make sure that your company has a culture of community, a, cu- a culture where people are, you know, promoted because they've, they've ex- you know, talked about other people's success or they've helped each other. Not, you know, not just the one person that stands up and says, I did this, I did this, I did that. Mm-hmm. But the person that can build a team or that can figure out how to get contributions from everybody. You know, if the culture values that, mm-hmm. then, you know, then we will, all, we will build communities within workplaces. And the whole thing, I think, will just, you know, I think it's just going to start feeding on itself. I totally agree. So finding ways for, pe- for the, to build the community and have people feel a part of the community is really important and I and I think it's so easy if you feel there's something different about you to again you know to sort of pull back and say I don't belong yeah. and I say go for it yeah. you know go try part, you said this in the pre-podcast questionnaire like part of why you belong is we all belong is we're all different mm-hmm. and the more we're the more different people are in a room like not only the like you think you mentioned the this student like a student will solve a problem a different way and then right. open up your mind so you're the peers you're with who are the more different they are, the more different they'll be presenting solutions. Right. So that's going to help the individuals in the room be exposed to different ideation, you know, different ideating from different individuals and ultimately net out presumably an even better conclusion for whatever the goal is solving a problem, creating a product, you name it. Right. Building a brand doesn't matter. Um, There's a lot of benefit to it. The, The community stuff's really cool too. Like it, to me, it just seems like sooner rather than later, like right now, yesterday, <laughs> but right now, unless we can come up with a time machine, let's go back in time a little bit. <laughs> but right now, like I, we should be building um, tech hubs in communities that aren't in, in major cities. But uh-huh. access to Boston right now is it sucks. Mm-hmm. It's super expensive. Right. I remembered what I was before we went live, but I wanted oh, to bring yeah. up my brother for. So he's leaving Los, Los Angeles. He's getting ready to teach in Spain for a year. Um, and when he moved to LA, he had like $400 to his name and has like a crazy story of like just scrapping and clawing to, you know, become the personal assistant to Jerry Bruckheimer and like figuring out the whole Hollywood world and being like, well, I don't really want to work in this world, but it's been great to me. And I'm going to be a novelist. Uh-huh. And he's, He's working on working on another book now, but his him and his wife rented an apartment in Hollywood for like fifteen hundred a month or sixteen hundred a month uh, about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Let's say sixteen hundred a month. That they just left last week. Mm-hmm. The apartment's now being rented for twenty seven hundred dollars a month, and it's a small one bedroom. Uh-huh. And for every story like that in L.A the stories exist in Boston. I'm sharing with the community that it's the same thing in other cities, if not worse. Uh, And so when I consider communities like Lawrence, Mm -hmm. like Lowell, and I'm just, I'm a Merrimack Valley kid, but I'm very familiar with like high density of people, like pretty dense, like immigrant populations, Mm -hmm. folks that work hard, that are, that are loyal, like just have like all the soft skills that you like 
that I seek out in humans, mm-hmm. like that can learn any, like that can learn many hard skills and hopefully identify hard skills that make them happy. Uh, it just seems like it's in the best economic interest of companies to like, and there's like Raytheon's and Andover, like there's some companies close to like a launch, but like to spend a little attention, like put, you know, and, and we talked about this a little bit before we went live, underwrite a physical space in Lawrence and create a little mini Silicon Valley where like people can co-work because just from hearing like what Roman and the tech for hood crew are doing, they just started with a meetup Mm. in Lawrence Uh and all these software engineers that were like Puerto Rican uh, Americans and Dominican Americans and all these like, and they were all like, Oh yeah. Like we're so underrepresented in our workplaces. Uh Let's change that. Right? right. And so they're, and all of a sudden, if you look up tech for hood, it's like a pretty robust organization right now. And with those, you know, with those, you know, and you actually just gave me another thought for them, which is, Oh, go talk to Merrimack college. Right. And find like the like minds at the school and teach to them what tech for hood is doing at its current scale yeah. and empower groups of students right. to go into Lawrence High, Methuen High, Lowell High, yeah, and, like North Andover, and like go into the high schools and yeah. get in front of students with with those frameworks. Like, there you go, you can start scaling it. Because one of the things that Ro- another thing Roman said that you'll love this. He's like, we don't need we don't need to bring diversity into tech. We need to bring tech into where diversity exists. Mm. There's diversity in all these communities around Boston. Right. We need to bring technology into their community. We have, like, there's plenty of people in the community that are there, that they're there that can be like the shepherds of like building the frameworks bottom up for, mm-hmm. for the, their common man, their peers, their neighbors. And for businesses, they then have this new, they have this rich pool of loyal, hardworking and, and increasingly like focused hard and, you know, tech related skills right. to become the workforce of the future of Boston and, and, and repeat that all, all else. So that's sort of like, I'm, I'm like now giving you like a little bit of like where, where I'd love to help um, devote some time and energy is, is to sort of these, these types of things. Well, and I think with a lot of, you know, people are smart for, I mean, really most people are really smart. And I think but people put their effort into what they love. So, yeah. you know, maybe somebody really loves reading and they become this, you know, incredible reader and maybe a novelist or something. But if somebody, you know, if somebody has a good teacher, I think we can teach anybody math, physics, uh, chemistry, engineering, whatever it is. If somebody is passionate about it, because learning is just practicing. Someone tells you this is how you do something and you practice and you get it wrong and you practice and you get it wrong and you try and you try and you try and eventually you get it right. Now you're ready for the next step. And if you're passionate about something, whether it's playing, you know, scoring a lacrosse goal or making your way through thermodynamics and physics, if it's taught to you in a way that's engaging and you have an interest, you can learn it. And so part of it is also giving people the chance to learn it. You know, if not everyone's schools are offering, you know, the the courses that they need, or, you know, maybe in some, depending on where they come from, maybe there's not even school. Right. But that doesn't mean, I think we tend to look at people if they, and and we did say that it's the earlier you can reach students, the better. I, I believe that, but that doesn't mean you just give up because somebody's 25 and has not, you know, learned how to doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't mean they can't be a fantastic engineer. Mm-hmm. Some combination of common 
sense and determination and persistence. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are the kinds of things that make people great at, at technology. And yes, of course, if you don't have a mathematical background, you have to get that. And, yeah. you know, you, there are, there are foundation, foundational skills that you need to build, but you can learn them if you want to. And we really need to give people the chance. I think yeah. what you're talking about where you're going into places and you're giving students, and by the way, give them something that's fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, doing math timetables is not fun. Some yeah. people like me, I actually kind of yeah. find them fun because it's like a game. How fast yeah. can I do it? Yeah. But if you give somebody a, a Lego robot and say program it to you know turn around three times when the lights come on. Oh, now that's a puzzle, right? Oh, yeah. let me see how I can solve that puzzle. And you give kids you know something fun and interesting and ask them to try to think of their own way to do it. And you you know yeah. amazing things can happen. So yeah, that's right. Uh, Deirdre Sattarelli again from from Endicott. So like we talked about this a little bit. Like also the, the like the the forgotten folks that have like gone past the traditional college age, right? Mm -hmm. And they're in their 20s and and maybe meandering in, in life and in, in, in struggling to identify a career. Um, and, and Endicott does like these community events where mm -hmm. they like invite in, uh, where they try to ex expose and, and they've created like a lot of like very elastic programs for, um, for basically adults to kind of get more of like an entrepreneurial oriented mm -hmm. sort of like education. Yeah. Um, which is, which is really neat. Like I think there needs to be, be more programs like that too. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just like going in and, and getting in front of, um, of young people. Mm -hmm. So what, what's the, um, what's your outlook for, for Boston these days? Like what things can, are there like, do you feel like change comes from the bottom up? Sometimes. But, but like I'm kind of setting myself up. It comes about a but, and money isn't everything, but it's a lot. Uh, and and those big brands in Boston with a lot of power and clout yeah. and deep pockets, I feel like it. it I'm talking to you, Wayfair. Like I'm talking to you, TripAdvisor. Like these big brands, Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, there's some pretty big brands, Fidelity. There's some big brands in Boston uh, that I feel like could probably put together a consortium mm -hmm. and like do like a collective corporate social responsibility initiatives, mm -hmm. uh, investing in many things. It's just, it just seems like a lack of CSR oriented initiatives that are like really focused on the issues and, and like more like, Hey, this, this cause is important. So we're underwriting the support of, you know, raising awareness about climate change. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. That's important. How does that help individual humans have better opportunity? Right. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what do you feel? How do you feel about, and you kind of, you kind of hinted at your, your answer, like it, change doesn't always happen from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Like we need the folks at the top, the big organizations, deep pockets to kind of help spark change. Mm -hmm. Are there, can, can you draw from your mother's playbook and, and give us a positive, <laughs> po you know, optimistic outlook on things? Uh, oh, I mean, I'm definitely optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I, I am definitely yeah. optimistic. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think we, you know, in some ways it's maybe sounds a little corny, but I think a lot of it is just that we all need to help each other and watch out for each other and take care of each other. And 
I think that if we can make, if we can be open to listening to other people's, who, other people whose ideas are not the same as ours, or who approach a problem a little bit differently than we do, um, and invite them in. So if we're, if we are in the, you know, we're working any at any level of the company. If I see somebody who comes in and I say, oh, you know what? I wonder if that I don't see that person talking to many people, or that person seems to have a different approach. Why don't I reach out to that person and try to help them feel welcome? Help them feel yeah. welcome and, and say share that like you're here because people want to hear how you think we know it's sure. different and you know and other people give them a chance to finish their sentence and just you know just be open-minded and realize that you know we all come we all come at a problem with our own prejudices and our own privileges you know this is something they talk a lot about at Wellesley about our privileges mm-hmm. and as much as we want to be able to say I I understand Zach where you're coming from I really can't understand exactly where you're coming from because I'm not you mm-hmm. and so I should be really careful not to put my own thought process and my judgment on you because you're coming from a different place mm-hmm. but that's hard I mean, I think that's hard to do, right? Because how do we judge, you know, part, that's partly how we get along in the world. Well, we judge that this is good enough and this isn't. And, you know, and, and, and if we have the judgment that's in tune with what our company is working, looking for, well, then all of a sudden we find ourselves going up the, the ladder. But when it comes to, you know, working with people, other people, I would say, put judgment aside, give somebody a chance, you know, try to, I mean, one of the things that uh, I learned in graduate school, or my graduate advisor said, you know, every now and then, you know, we're at MIT, people would send in, you know, emails, like asking us questions that we thought were a little crazy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he would say, you know, never, never treat someone like that. You should always listen to what someone has to say, because they think that way for a reason. So what's the reason? Maybe there's something to it that really is useful and mm-hmm. something that you should be thinking about, you know, rather than just dismissing somebody because you think it's... They don't know what they're talking about or they're a little bit different and you know so i i think at the upper level i think you know management has to try to make sure that they have a culture of inclusion that they have a culture where they're looking for not one person to make it to the top but everyone to mm-hmm. be constantly advancing in their career and that they should be rewarding employees who build community as much as they reward employees that, you know, figured out the size of the nut that had to yeah. go on this or motor to make it, you know, yeah. work the right way. Or I mean, sold the most product that month. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, all of their, it's all, it's, it's all valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I think but really putting some valuable weight on the community building and just like that and, and giving everyone equal opportunity and, and, feeling that there's that they have clear lanes to ascend right and some somewhere along the way i got lucky and the group of people that i worked with in graduate school used to always give each other credit so if mm-hmm. we were standing up to yeah, give right, a, yeah. you know give a talk someone would say oh you know i was talking to morris about this and he made yeah. me think of it this way yeah just gratuitous it's a we right? thing yeah right yeah, and yeah. then and then now Those subtleties are important exactly because now people think like oh if I share my idea with her, she's going to acknowledge it yeah. and, and back and forth. Exactly. And that kind of stuff is so simple, but yeah. it makes all the difference in the world. And yeah. it lets people be seen. You know, some yeah. people, yeah. some people don't, you know, some people don't speak up or if they're nervous yeah. or they don't feel like they fit in, well then find out what it is they care about and speak up for them or, or help them, yeah. you know, have their voice. Be heard. Yeah, the word that comes to mind is buoyancy. Mm. You know, like just like, a depo- like being more expansive and, Whose input, you know, in in many inputs, but also giving much credit to many mm-hmm. people, and like mm-hmm. collectively, everyone kind of yeah. lift, lifts up. You're doing a fantastic job of active listening. 
we kind of talked about this in the, in the pre-podcast questionnaire like you're like into very you're intentionally focused on just being your your mind you know it sounds like you, your mind and my mind are similar like move really fast and you're like oh oh i could say this or i could say that and like try to like slow your like quiet your brain down and just listen to the words in front of you and then respond which is what i've been trying to do too and it was really cool reading your your answer to that i was like oh my god that's me and then sometimes like and it's even like my, our daughter's gotten really verbal now. Like uh-huh. She's a little over two years old and, and, um, and she'll be list. She listens to everything and then she'll like jump in. And, and, uh, so I've been literally talking to her. Like, first of all, like I thought she's very good at using, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> and then like ask, you know, ask her, you know, ask her questions and whatnot. Um, but I just um, noticed um, my observation, uh, a plus, Thank you. On your active listening. I'm working on that. I, yeah. I, and I got that feedback from the students because yeah. I remember I always say any questions. And yeah. I love it when students have questions. Yeah. But, boy, they don't get halfway through the question. And I've already got the answer. Right. And then I got the feedback where they said, well, she doesn't answer my questions. And I'm thinking, well, I, but I realized it's because I didn't let them finish the yeah. question. So I am really working on that. That's so cool of you. you. And also, like, that, that they're, like, the courage to, like, admit, like, oh, this is a moment of here's, here's like a point of vulnerability mm-hmm. and, and, and an intention I have to be a better human. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the type of reason why like we're <laughs> like minds are, are attracted, you know, to each other in the same way that, um, you know, many listeners who listen to this podcast, um, perhaps will reach out to Katie with, with questions or interest about some of the things that were discussed. So what, what is the best way to contact you mm-hmm. to, and, 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 um, you know, what's your ideal, form of communication, social media? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly I have a, the, probably the best way to reach me yeah. is at Cifrin Global. Mm-hmm. And so my email is khall, K-H-A-L-L at Cifrin Global, all one word, dot com. And Cifrin is spelled C-I-P-R-U-N. And if all of that's too much and you can't remember, then um, if you go to the Wellesley College website where I'm teaching in the physics department, you can just plug my name in and it'll come up with my Wellesley College email address and can reach me that way as well. Amazing. Um, last question that I want to ask is of things that we haven't discussed today, um, and we've we've very well documented, which is sometimes my last question is like, what's something about the world you want to change? And like, mm. we firmly know what drives, you know, drives you like your mission driven mindset is just helping create more access to opportunity for all types of people. Um, but just curious, like you've, you've kind of been around where the puck's been going for some, you know, some time now, are there any new technologies, um, are there particular categories of innovation coming out of your alma mater, MIT? Mm-hmm. Um, just things that people should, that you would like point folks toward, like taking a look at right now and now, or, you know, fast forward a few years. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, I know one of the big pushes um, in terms of funding of research in the United States is in um, an area that gets called all kinds of different things. It might get called quantum information mm-hmm. or quantum computing or um, quantum communication. So there's a lot of different ways that people will refer to it. But quantum mechanics is a sort of a new, it's sort of the newest part of physics today. It's It mm-hmm. really is, you know, from Einstein, this idea that there's a quantum world that's fundamentally different than the, well, it's not fundamentally different mm-hmm. than the classical world, because in the end, the two things have to line up. But mm-hmm. 
Um, but a lot of people see that as being a very big technology area that's growing, and there's a lot of money going in to try to educate people about quantum from, you know, f figuring out ways to introduce it in elementary schools, which I, it, that's going to be hard, mm -hmm. um, but all the way up through, um, you know, middle school, high school, and I mean, I guess to the extent that if my mother were reading in the Boston Globe yeah, today, yeah, yeah. you know, what would she read? Um, she would probably read about this thing called quantum information and that if, if people are interested in, in understanding where will there be a lot of opportunity, yeah. I think that's a good place to look. Cool. Is there anything you've read recently about quantum mechanics that you would point folks toward? Is there like a research paper that's been done or a particular person that's like, a top analyst on this? Yeah, so I think I, I would say um, the best place to start is to read, like, I love Scientific American. Yeah. I, I love the popular science journals because I think they do a really good job of getting to the crux of an issue but presenting it in an interesting way and not losing people in all of the details. Yeah. Um, so and, laymen like me can understand. Uh, well, I think it's <laughs> yeah. hard to understand yeah, no, Scientific yeah, American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I no, mean, yeah. You have to be pretty dedicated. No, I, think, I know. Uh, that's, why I like, that's, that's why I like it, too. <laughs> um, but I think that's the, that's the place place to start. Um, but I'm just thinking if you're going to school and you're thinking about what topic areas, you know, you might be interested in or um, something like that, that's a that's a that's a topic that's going to be with us for a while. And there's going to be a lot of funding so that f to students and, and young researchers and people going into tech, you know, the puck. Yeah. It's like following the puck? soccer yeah. ball. The puck is yeah. that's, I think, that puck that's at least one of the places it is right now. Very cool. Uh, is there anything we haven't discussed today that's valuable to share with the Boston community? Any initiatives going on with Cyprin Global that would be helpful for like young entrepreneurs to be aware of mm -hmm. in in the city? Well, I mean, I think for as far as Cyprin Global is concerned, we're just getting started. And really, um, we're a relatively small shop, but we're sort of backed by this big entity in China that has the ability to really very cost effectively help U.S. inventors build their portfolios in China. And so, you know, we're definitely interested in talking to um, people from, you know, individuals to small companies to big companies. Um, you know, you can just call us. We're in, we're, we're in Boston. We're on the East Coast time zone. So call us and talk to us about, you know, what you're thinking about and if you're interested. And if we don't have something you're interested in, then we'll say thanks for calling and move on. But we might really be able to offer some services and, and help people think about growing their business in a much more global way. Um, you know, the IP landscape is changing in the sense that it, the U.S. used to be the place where most patents were filed and most, you know, patents were litigated. And now with the EU, you know, there's quite a bit in Europe, but very quickly um, China is becoming the place that has the most patent submissions and where the work is going on. And so, um, you know, we really feel like being here, but having this group we collaborate with in China, yeah. you know, hopefully is the makes it very easy for people to really be able to consider that as a way to protect their technology. So we would love to, you know, talk to people, send me, send yeah. me an email or go to our website, um, cypringlobal.com and uh, let us know what we can do to, to help out. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Katie, this has been a pleasure. I'm so happy that we both just got to be here in the moment and be present in Boston. Glad that you guys got to join us. Um, really grateful for the time, Katie Hall. Thank you very much. You're awesome. Really, <laughs> I feel the same way about yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, uh, and cheers, Boston.